In the mid-1720s, Alexander Cruden had in mind to compile the most thorough concordance of the King James Bible. Now, a concordance takes every word of the Bible and writes it down and tells us where to find it in the Bible. This is a massive task. In the King James Version of the Bible, there are over 700,000 words. The word him occurs over 6,000 times. The word her almost 2,000. And the word God occurs over 4,000 times. And Alexander Cruden, he had a daytime job. And so he did this at night before there were electric lights. He had no financial backing, no patron. He did this all on his own. But in 1737, he published Cruden's Bible Concordance. Cruden's Concordance has not been out of print since. The last time I checked, there were over 18 different versions of Cruden's Concordance online. Now, here's the catch. Alexander Cruden was institutionalized four times in his life. That is how ancient, or not ancient, but cultures in the 1700s used to deal with people they called mad. We would call them mentally ill. Sometimes his behavior was bizarre. One time he broke up a fight between some drunken soldiers, sat them down, lectured them on the evils of swearing and drinking, and finished his lecture by whacking them over the heads with shovels. Shovel. On other occasions, Alexander Cruden would go up to uh, women that he had just met and propose marriage to them on the spot. And then he refused to take no for an answer, behavior we would call in our culture stalking. Eventually, Alexander Cruden felt that it was God's will that he be appointed to the court of the King of England for a position he created called corrector of the people. Now, of course, that probably never made it to the king of England, but Alexander Cruden finished his life traveling the countrysides of Great Britain, preaching to people, rambling on to random strangers about the importance of keeping the Sabbath. I'm suggesting that, first of all, we take the offering. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Ushers, would you please come? (laughs) Nick leaves and the church is starting to sink really fast. I'm I'm telling you. Uh, We were supposed to do that earlier in the service, and I said in my mind, I won't forget it, and I forgot it. So, uh, by the way, we do this for God. Uh, this is our way of saying to him, happy Thanksgiving. He's given us every good gift we have. And so we thank him back. Thanks, ushers, for standing back there for a half hour and waiting for us, too. Read history long enough. Read the Bible in a short period of time, and you will discover that the mentally ill the sick, the broken, the sinner, all fit into God's designs. That the purposes of God have much to do with the physically disabled, the emotionally unstable, the 
struggling sinner, the, the mentally ill. God, the author of history, everything he writes, he writes with crooked sticks. Like you and me, because we've all been in one of those categories at some point in our lives. There's a word for that, writing with crooked sticks, that God does. It's the distinctive word of Christianity. What makes Christianity a different religion than any other religion. It's the meat and potatoes word of Christianity. Grace. So I thought that the best thing we could do sitting on the edge of Thanksgiving, about to enter Advent, about to have these crazy five, six weeks in front of us, this may be the last time you get some silence and to take a breath. I thought, what better way for us to prepare than to sit down at a table with Jesus and hear him say grace? Here it is, Luke chapter 5. After this, Levi went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Early in Luke, Jesus is in his home territory of Galilee. He's traveling from village to village. He is demonstrating the kingdom of God, this power that he brings in himself to bring the future into the present to bring heaven to earth, this amazing demonstration of the kingdom of God, miracles, healings, casting out demons. And he's also preaching these amazing words about himself, that he's the one not only bringing this power, but bringing the good news that if you follow him, you'll be saved. Going from village to village, it was common in the Roman Empire to have toll booths at each village, Roman government getting its share. And so Jesus is walking into the next village. The text says he saw Levi, walked up to the booth and said two words. Two words turned Levi's life inside out, upside down. What were those two words? Would you say them again? Follow me. And something happens inside Levi. He leaves his old life, takes on a new life. He becomes one of the intimate circle of followers of Jesus who who for three years lived with him on a camping trip around the Middle East. He would be the one who would write one of the four portraits of the king that we have. We call them the Gospels. He writes the first book in the New Testament in our English translations, the Gospel according to Matthew. He would go on 
to become a witness for Jesus Christ, first in Galilee, but church tradition tells us he was persecuted and had to flee Galilee. He ended up taking the good news of Jesus Christ to the country of Ethiopia, and there he died as a witness, a, a, a martyr for the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you see that Jesus sees you, you look at everything differently. There's a word for that. It's called repentance. So the grace floods Matthew's heart. Follow me, the king, calling him, and his response is repentance. I've never uh, gotten away from Luther's comment that said, from beginning to end, the Christian life is repentance. Often we hear repentance and we think, well, that's something you do to start. No. Repentance is the primary activity of a believer, of a follower. It means to align yourself continually with the intentions of God. Hour by hour adjustments. When you become a follower of Jesus, you get a new operating system. And you're doing upgrades all the time to get you aligned with the heart of Jesus. We are constantly repenting. You see, when Jesus comes into our lives and breaks in and you realize he's seeing you, the Holy Spirit comes in. He moves into our inner being and takes up residence. And at least two things happen in that space. One, we begin to understand that the presence of God is now with us all the time. We've never, ever been alone. Paul, the great apostle, would write about it in Galatians 4 and Romans 8 this way, that the Spirit comes into our inner being and begins to pour in the love of the Father into our hearts so that we cry out, Father, we realize we have this relationship with the God of heaven, the one who made us, the one who saved us. We have a father, and we've never, ever been alone. It was such a great honor for me to sit with Sarah Black. And congratulations, Samantha and Sarah, again, from Waterstone. When Sarah was telling me and walking me through her journey, I remember near the end, one of the things she told me, she says, when I've come back to the Lord, one of the things I've realized as I look through all the twists and turns of my life and my journey with Ken, is that Jesus was always there waiting for me. You see, when we have that grace flood our hearts and we respond with repentance and receive that grace, we have this presence of love invade our being. We realize we've never, ever been alone. Father, we praise him for his love. The other thing that happens when Jesus invades, we, we see God so differently when we, when we repent, is that it, we have a power in us that enables us to live hard things and do hard things. The apostle John talked about it this way. When we walk through life and we're, we have challenges in life and God calls us to do hard things, we begin to realize that greater is the one in us than the one in the world, the adversary, the demonic one. Greater is the one in us 
than the one in the world. I read a story this past week. It was written by a man named Daniel Walker. And Daniel Walker has felt the call to infiltrate brothels around the world to gather evidence so that he could get women and children released from the slavery of sex trafficking. He describes how he, his, he, how he overcame his initial fears. He said, I quote, I had not been conducting investigations into sex trafficking for very long, and being inside a brothel still left me feeling vulnerable and afraid. I was afraid of my sinful nature. I was afraid of perpetrators and corrupt officials who were profiting from this organized crime. And I was afraid of going into what I perceived as demonic enemy territory. But then he continued, and he said, after he said a prayer, a still voice reminded me that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And then the words of an old hymn came to my mind. This is my father's world. Again, I saw for the first time that the brothel I was standing in was as much a part of God's creation as any beautiful mountain or crystal cathedral and that God had in no way surrendered it to anyone. I knew that God was in that brothel before I arrived suffering with the victims, witnessing their defilement night after night, and sharing in their tears and shame, and that he would remain in the brothel long after I left. And any uncertainty I previously had about walking into such a dark and evil place dissolved. Though not in an audible sense, I nevertheless heard his command and his call to go boldly in his name to such a place as this. When we repent and get this new operating system, we realize a presence of love in our inner being and we realize a power that enables us to live through hard things and do hard things as God calls us. The other thing that happens as this invasion of Jesus came into Matthew's life, comes into our life, is that we begin to see people differently. They're not competitors. They're not pains. We begin to realize, because we've sat at the table with Jesus, that you've never looked into the eyes of a person who does not matter to God. It totally transforms the way you engage people. We see these two things come together, this power of the Spirit this calling to people in Matthew's response. The first fruit of repentance in the text that Matthew does is what? Party. I know, it says banquet. That's, that's just too tame. That is too lame. The text actually uses the words in their cultural context for a bash. A party. This, and, and the indication of the text is that Jesus, though it's in Matthew's home, is the host. This is a glimpse of the coming of the end of history, the goal of it all. This is where everything is headed to a party that Jesus is hosting when 
everything sad will come untrue. As Tolkien said, this is a party. And so Matthew's instinct after receiving Christ into his life is to introduce Jesus, the host of the party, to everyone he knows. So friends, here's what I'm after this morning. I want us to realize that one of the first fruits of relining our lives with the heart of Jesus by the hour is this passion to introduce Jesus to everyone we know. Is that passion in your heart this morning? How's the level? To introduce everyone you know to Jesus. Can I mess with us a little bit on this? I'm going to. As a follower of Jesus, anyone in the room this morning that says, I'm following Jesus, we believe that He's the most important person, that he upholds everything by the power of his word, that he is the one who defines reality. He's the one who forgives our sins and gives us eternal life through his resurrection. Then why is it that it's such a hard thing for us to introduce our friends to Jesus? When was the last time? that you actually told someone about Jesus? When? One of the most haunting quotes I've ever read was from a man named Donald Miller in a book called Blue Like Jazz. He nailed me with this quote. Oh, back one, Steve, there we go. The trouble with deep belief is that it costs something. And there is something inside me, some selfish beast of a subtle thing that doesn't like the truth at all because it carries responsibility. And if I actually believe these things, I have to do something about them. I used to say that I believed it was important to tell people about Jesus, but I never did. My friend, quote unquote, Andrew very kindly explained that if I do not introduce people to Jesus, then I don't believe Jesus is an important person. It doesn't matter what I say. In other words, the question, is Jesus important to you? And the question, have you told anyone about Jesus lately? These are the same question. Have we told anyone, introduced our friends and family to Jesus? It's not only true for us as individuals, it's also true for our church and our culture here at Waterstone and any church that preaches the gospel. How do we view the church? What's interesting is that when Matthew has this party, invites his friends. Um, Did you notice that after the party, Jesus' pastors 
come up and they're too cowardly to talk to Jesus, but they talk to his disciples and they ask, don't you realize who you're having this meal with? Now, you have to understand more than in our culture, in their culture, when you sat down to eat with someone, that was a very intimate act that signified connection. Those people were your people. The things they did, you did. It was a a connection to share a meal with someone. And so Jesus is sharing a meal with tax collectors. Now, I want to just make two quick observations. One, Jesus' pastor's way and view of holiness was a kind of holiness by quarantine. They believed that in order for God to see you, you had to do good things and good things and better things and better things. You had to earn it. You had to be holy. And if you were holy enough, good enough, then God would see you. And then when you felt that you were good enough and God saw you, then you have to stay away from all the bad people and all the bad things. It was a holiness by quarantine. Jesus came to bring a different kind of holiness. And the gospel holiness comes because God sent his only son to live the life we should have lived, perfectly obedient, did everything a a, a follower should do and didn't do anything a follower shouldn't do. And that life of righteousness is gifted to us when we trust Jesus to save us. And also, for all the bad things we have done and how we've fallen short of who God is and his holiness, we don't have the fitness in ourselves to exist in his presence. So Jesus had to come and die so that our sins could be forgiven. So he lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. And when we trust him, not ourselves and our good deeds, when we trust him and his deeds and what he's done, we're saved. And then in God's sight, we are holy. And we're declared righteous in his sight. And thus, holiness is not quarantine. Holiness is contagious. It's good news. You can be holy. I can be holy. Accepted in God's sight. But Jesus, don't you realize that you're socializing with scum? Tax collectors. They were bad people, actually. They uh, were Jews. If they were in Israel, they were Jews who worked for the Roman government, which means they were helping Rome oppress their own people. Strike one. Strike two. What the, the way, uh, when you hear tax collectors, think mafia. They had, like, enforcers. They, they were given a piece of uh, a village and they had a certain quota from Rome, but as long as they met that quota, they could charge as high of tax as they wanted. And they were greedy and, and practiced all kinds of horrible ways to extort money from people. They were scum. In fact, the Talmud, the Jewish religious handbook, said that no tax collector should be allowed to set foot in a synagogue or their money. And here's Jesus sitting at a table with a repenting tax collector and all his friends and family sitting at that table breaking bread. Do you know what that means? How we view the church? A place 
for sinners. The gospel is for bad people, for crooked sticks. Eugene Peterson, the late Eugene Peterson, puts it this way. The error persists despite very clear evidence to the contrary. Men and women insist on thinking of Christians as the good people whom God likes. But Jesus said that Christians are the bad people whom God calls to salvation. The church, like a hospital, is full of sick people in the process of being healed, not well people displaying their prowess. Hospital for the sick and the broken. I had a high school social studies professor who would often, in the middle of a lecture, stop and interrupt and say, to her people, close your books, take out a sheet of paper. It's time for a quiz. Are you ready? Here's a quiz, Waterstone. Do the down and out feel welcome in our church? I'm really asking you if you'd be willing to sit near them and talk to them and engage. Are we more a community of respectability or a community of grace? Would sinners feel wanted and welcome among us? Would we like, would we like Jesus if he walked in? Sinners loved him. Legalists were revolted by him. How would you have responded to the homeless man, Jesus? One application and then a closing meditation. The application is this. We are approaching the time of year when people are very, very open to hospitality. Christmas. Would you be willing to make part of your Christmas plan a time when you invite your neighbors to your table? In this culture, it's becoming more and more secular. It's more and more difficult to get people to come to church. But that's actually and probably not a bad thing because where they really need to go first is to your table. They really need to be introduced to Jesus by you. Would you be willing to host some kind of Christmas party cookies and hot chocolate, the only goal to get them to come into your house, have some conversation, get to know them. That's it. The beginning of a conversation. Now, of course, you're subversely praying for them. If they ask you anything about you, answer their questions. But 
I'm just asking you to have a Christmas party where you invite your neighbors to your table. Maybe that's hard. Maybe you, you live in an apartment, you have roommates and all. Maybe that's not a possibility. How about something else maybe radical, like just everyone that you work with giving them a gift, some kind of unexplained kindness that you give to people you work with, people across the hall in the apartment complex, whatever it is. We have a word for it, neighboring. I'm asking you to live out this rhythm of the kingdom, neighboring, where we want to see God invade other people's lives like he invaded Matthew's life. That usually begins at a table. Would you do it? Would you consider it? And then tell us your stories, how it went, your Christmas party. The meditation, you're asking, ah, where does that motivation come from? You know, how is this not just another thing you're asking me to do? Here's my answer to that. I want to remind you that your journey with Jesus began in the same place as Matthew's. You were a tax collector and a sinner. And you saw Jesus seeing you. His grace flooded your heart. You realized you needed help. You needed saved. And you turned to him. I'm telling you, Jesus is still sitting at that table of tax collectors and sinners. Are you? Let me ask it this way, and then I'm going to walk off. Is amazing grace still a sweet sound to you? Let's sit in that for just a moment.